and welcome to CigarCast, your weekly one-stop shop for all things cigar-related, including industry news, reviews, and everything in between. We're recording live from Crown Cigars and Nails here in beautiful Brentwood, Tennessee. I'm one of your hosts, Trey Edmond. I'm joined as I am every week by Mr. Shane Reeves. All right, folks. Here it is. You asked for it, and now you've got it. This is the show after the show. That's right. Oh, does that mean I can uh, let my tongue fly a little bit? Well, <laughs> if you wish to put an explicit warning on no. it. Uh, no, I'll, I'll be good. So traditionally, Trey and I have a cigar and do the show, and then afterwards we fire up another cigar and discuss the world and just share time being friends. Right. And on, we thought, this is an excellent opportunity. We had a, a dearth, uh, an excess of content Which today. Which never, ha- or at least hasn't happened in a long time. Yeah, we had an excess of content, and I owed Trey a cigar anyway. So we decided, all right, we're going to record a show with our listeners of what we talk about after the show. And it's going to be a little different because we're, we're still talking content that we brought for the show. But I, I do think, you know, we, the conversation we had on the break of the last show was, you know, I've got the energy. We've got the content. It's cooling off. It's beautiful out here. We're just going to be sitting here anyway. Let's let's go for it. So, so instead of lighting our cigar, instead of I've got about a third of a high clear castle left in my hand. And I've got about a third of, of my cigar left, the Nestor Miranda so Special we're Collection. Gonna, we're going to finish these cigars, and we'll let you know when we're going to light our next one. We'll go, we'll describe the cigar at the time we decide to light it. This is a, like it. a real-time episode a break, of the Cigar Cast. A true break from uh, our format. I like this. I do, too. So, okay. So, being as this is our conversation after the show, we don't have to open with a cigar article, do we? That's right. No, we don't. Let's solve the cliffhanger. All right. Let's get back to cryptids because this is something, and, and you listen to the show. I don't. So, I don't know. It sounds like we didn't get into the topic at all, really. Well, you asked me what was my favorite cryptid, and then the, the show cut out. Okay. Two weeks so ago we now. lost about 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> that, that show was running long anyway. I think the Zoom actually said, hey, they don't, they don't yeah, record this, this long this usually. Is not- is it saving us from ourselves? So a quick primer on cryptozoology. Cryptozoology is the study of creatures that may or may not exist. Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, Yeti. The, those are the standards. Jersey Devil. See, and, there, and there's varying levels of credibility per monster. You know, at the top of credibility of monsters, I look at lake monsters as being the most credible to exist. Absolutely. And I'll, then Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti probably falls into that category, secondly, of being... The, the problem with Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Yeti is somebody should have caught one on a trail camera by now. Yeah. If the you've technology ever, exists that we should probably suss that out. Yeah, if you've ever put a trail camera in the woods, the things that you get pictures of are amazing. And, I'll, and now with the days that we have cell phone-enabled um, cameras, you know, one of our guys here at the shop... His phone will beep, and it'll be a picture from his trail cam of a deer that walked by his stand. Yeah. And all he needs to do is hook a gun to his camera. He could kill him remote. Oh, I've got to tell you about this, because we, we went for a walk last night um, around the neighborhood about 11 o'clock. It was late. Did you say it, Bigfoot? Tell me you saw Bigfoot. I saw a doe <laughs> that let me get from here to that tree away from her. Approximately 15 foot for those playing at home. Yeah. I mean, I've never... And this is... You know, we've got woods and uh, and a park really near our house and so we do see them in our neighborhood and a lot of the old people since no one has to manage their own lawns the HOA manages our lawn so old people throw corn and stuff out so they can watch the deer from their kitchen and 
yeah, if I didn't have to maintain the lawn, I'd do that too. And so, you know, it's fairly common to see deer out in the area, but this was kind of away from the park. I think maybe she got turned around or lost or something and then because she was really skittish as we were walking up. But then she just kind of realized that we weren't a threat. She, you know, snorted at us a little bit just to let her, let us know. But she let us get so close, and she just watched us, and then she'd eat a bite, and then she'd watch us some more. It was crazy. Oh, if, if deer don't could perceive you as a threat, they'll let you walk up. Yeah. I mean, no, they're not going to let you pet them, but they'll let you walk up to them if they don't perceive you as a threat. Yeah, and we didn't have the dog with us, which made all the difference in the world. I was also wearing a – I've got a, a lighted vest that I wear for, for running at night just – for visibility and it flashes different colors and i think it was just kind of i think she was really intrigued by what was going on but when you get down to chupacabra you're getting on the line for me and when by the time you're at jersey devil you've lost me yeah and all jersey devil for me is the is the absolute now that don't exist that's the tourism money grab yeah yeah that's that's definitely the money grab and all but my favorite cryptid is always going to be Champ, Lake Champlain's Lake Monster. Mm-hmm. Um, Rattlesnake Island is inundated with underwater caves, so there's plenty of places that a lake monster like that could go so that they were never caught on sonar. There's plenty, there's plenty of evidence if you... I'm not going to sit here and read an article about Lake Champlain's um, Monster Champ. You can research that on your own. But to me, it's a North American river monster. It's in a lake. You know, my problem with Nessie is what does it eat? Because Loch Ness is not a rich lake. It's not a biologically rich lake. True. But that's why, like, for me, that's why I completely agree with you about, you know, oceanic and, and marine monsters having the most credibility. Because, you know, we've only explored, what is it, like 2% of the Earth's waterways in terms of species and things like that. So... It's entirely possible, especially when you consider that when you get down to certain depths of the Pacific, they those are creatures that would not have been affected by the the catastrophic events that affected, um, you know, the extinction of dinosaurs and things like that. Well, and you start talking about you know the coelacanth, which was the det- which was found. They had been thought to have been extinct for hundreds of years, and they come up to an island in the Philippines, and they say, oh, yeah, we catch them all the time. Yeah. And all uh, the coelacanths, you start talking about, they discovered a pygmy whale that was supposedly extinct just last year. Yeah. It was big cryptid, cryptid news. And uh, so when you start talking about those kind of things, you can, the marine, the marine monsters are by far, to me, the most viable. Yeah, especially, like, you know, I thought it was interesting. Was it about five years ago that, um, that Discovery Channel did the big thing on Megalodon, and they filmed it like a documentary and con- and and uh, um, fooled millions of people. Oh yeah, the that mo- thought it the was full real. Mockumentary. Oh, I, and they did such a good job with it. Um, no, it may have been sci-fi, not Discovery no, Channel. It was Discovery it was Channel. Channel. It was during Shark Week. That's right. I thought they did such a good job of that because Megalodon is one of those that's incredibly feasible to me. Well, and all of these people get their panties in a wad about the the mockumentary. But, you know, okay, the mermaid one that Discovery did, you would have to be an idiot to have believed it. See, I, I would believe in the Jersey Devil before I believe in mermaids. There, there's just, uh, I, I'm out when you start talking about mermaids. When you start talking about a species, you know, an evolutionary path by which monkeys developed gills, 
It became mermaids. Yeah, you've lost me. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the the centaur thing. You know, obviously no one believes that centaurs ever actually existed. Same with satyrs, but you know, it, but when you start thinking of them as as having the ability, there's no through line there. There's no feasibility biologically for that to exist. At least with Bigfoot and with Nessie and Champ, and you know, the, yeah, there's there's some there's some scientific feasibility in those stories and i think that's what makes for a good cryptid you know it's funny i've got i'm gonna i'm gonna come back to cryptid but i do have to tell you this may be the first year that i make a mid-year resolution okay my new year's resolution is a big deal in my life we talk about it on the show every year but i had a resolution come to me that is so brilliant that is so beneficial to my life i don't think i'm gonna wait till january I, I fully support that. What is it? Some thoughts should die on the vine. Some thoughts are not worth putting energy into. Um, I can make all of my fellow Christians mad right now. If they get mad, that's the, that'll be their problem, not mine. The theory of evolution versus creationism we- is a thought that just dies on the vine for me. I, th- I think God's got it in hand. I think he's a busy man. I think there's a reason why messages from God is like talking to a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. It goes through channels. No, it just, hey, go get it done. I'm not going to tell you how to get it done. I, I gave you this job. I wouldn't give you this job if I didn't think you had the capability to do it. Go do it. Now just go do it. Yeah. Just go, just go get it done. Bring me the baby. Don't give me the labor pains. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. And that thought just dies on the vine for me. And I'll, um, this week, I had a thought that I'm just going to let die on the vine. All of the white people voicing black characters on animation, all of the The Simpsons will no longer let that happen and all that, don't care. Dying on the vine. Not going not to get into it, not going to argue a perspective. I just don't care. And uh, I, I'm, I don't think that thought's worth watering, and I don't think any fruit's going to come from that thought that makes it worth me fertilizing. I, 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 you know, I appreciate that approach. I really do. It, for me, the, your two examples are two that I probably wouldn't apply that to, but that's not to say that I, I disagree with the premise entirely. You know, um, I think there's something to be said for... You know, now I'm not going to sit here and get into a theological or evolutionary discussion with somebody and try and change their mind because I know there's no point in that. But since this is the show after the show, what do we typically end up doing when we sit out here is philosophizing, and we rarely agree. We usually agree on the on the approach, but not the final resolution, or vice versa. Maybe we agree on the end result, but not necessarily how we get there. And I think there's something to be said for considering, let's take the evolution, you know, whether or not there's any evidence to support one way or the other. Now, in the grand scheme of things, will we ever have a definitive answer to it? No. So is it worth spending a lot of time when we could be spending that same amount of time on on more fruitful pursuits i I agree with you well and people that that hammer down on the word of the bible that just really hammer down on the word you got to think about words 
Think about let's let's think about words for a minute. Let's take a, a very innocuous word. See, we talk about this before, before. Just cut you off for a second. We talk about this in my household a lot, especially as we have a twelve-year-old who's you know getting into the real meat and potatoes of grammar and English in school right now. And and we say words are important. You know, there's a big difference between. Um, words that mean the same thing in the broad scope, but may have more specific definitions in context. And so the words you choose to use, and so as it applies to, you know, biblical discussions, we have to think about the the intent behind the words, the fact they've been translated 63,000 times, you know, you're going to lose some meaning. Well, there. you think, think about an innocuous word. Think about the word partner. 15 years ago, if I introduced you and said, this is my partner, Trey, they'd say, oh, what line of business are y'all in? 30 years ago. 30 years ago. The blink of an eye in terms of the amount of time. Oh, in the, yeah, in the, yeah. And we're not going to get into Seconds in the macro scale. We, we've burned a thousand cigars on the existence of time. Right. And I'll, we're not going to burn, uh, burn another and on it right at this moment. But... Nowadays, if I say, this is my partner, Trey, well, Shane, don't you think you can do better? When did you tell your parents? What did they think? You know? Yeah. So an innocuous word like partner has undergone an amazing transition in the span of 30 years. I'll give you 30 years. What about a word that was written 1,500 years ago? Right. I mean, when you're talking about that much time, I just, I don't know that you can hammer on the word so much as you need to hammer on the principles and the thoughts. Well, especially when you consider that Jesus spoke in allegory so much, and much of his teaching was in symbolism and not in specific word use. So to apply a, you know, strict letter of the Bible approach, to me, takes away from the overall message. Yeah, and, you know... Jesus, more than anybody else, understood knowledge unearned is knowledge unvalued. Right. And if you earn the knowledge, if he can tell you a parable and you can come about to the piece of knowledge he's trying to give you, you will value that piece of knowledge far more than if he just told you the answer. Well, and I also think it speaks to the vi- the validity of, of his position on this earth because there was an understanding that these words would be read and told for generations, for thousands and thousands, if not millions of years in the future. And there was a certain underlying omniscience to speaking in a way that can be translated to other tongues and to other periods of time that, that is something, and, and I think we do a disservice when we look at it line by line instead of as the whole message. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the, we do it every day in courts. Mm. And the reason we have courts, the reason we have judges, is to protect the spirit of the law from the letter. Right. And, and well, and, you know, especially with all this FDA stuff, if you ever read the actual legislations that come out, it's, whereas the party of the first part, pursuant to the party of the second part, on behalf of the party of the third, what? Yeah. And, and we've developed this legalese that is that is you know part and partial to the fact that we have to that we have to be so specific because the smallest the smallest change of a letter or change of a word becomes a different meaning entirely yeah so it's you know i think my resolution that there are thoughts i'm going to start let dying on the vine because i'm a deep person 
I have a lot of thoughts, and I pour a lot of um, a lot of a lot of thought into my. In, I do a lot of pondering. I call it yeah. I'm pondering. You know, what's funny is I think it's really interesting because I've, I've talked about on the show a couple of years ago. You know, this past year I made a resolution. I've already forgotten what it was. And because I'm not usually a resolution guy. Um, but I recently as well saw a piece of my character that I wasn't necessarily happy with and, and made a, a kind of a mid-year resolution as well. And it just happened to happen a couple of days ago. So I was like, okay, July 1st kind of becomes the line in the sand. And you know, it actually comes from a conversation that you and I had on, on the show and then after the show uh, about a month and a half ago about uh, about evil and about evil in your life and, and, you know, and how evil is such a broad word and it can be perceived different ways. And, you know, we've talked after the show, I don't think I've ever talked about this on air, but I used to be a miserable little so-and-so, very negative, pessimistic, um, cynical. And I woke up one day, I had, well, I actually had a situation. And then once I got removed from the situation, I realized that's not the kind of person I want to be. And so I worked very hard over the next several years to become more positive, more easygoing, and and I started noticing a couple of months ago and that that I was I wasn't putting the work in on I had gotten comfortable in the changes I had made and I was starting to slide back a little bit. Um, to the point that you brought up, like I have a tendency to comment on social media posts when someone's being a jack wagon. And yeah, I just don't need to do that. There ain't no fruit up that tree. You know, it satisfies this this part of my brain that enjoys an argument. And I don't mean like a, a screaming match. I mean a considered philosophical or um, academic um, exchanging of ideas. I, I enjoy that. That's what we do after the show every week. But when you bring it to an online forum, number one, it's out in public. Number two, it's you know, open to interpretation because it's text. And so you lose a lot of the, of the impetus behind it. It context. Yeah. And so, and I've noticed that, and, and like you said, no one's ever going to change their mind over something they read online, especially if they're being, you know, and I try, I try very hard not to be antagonistic, but to bring up alternate points of view. But at the same time, it's not doing any, anything good for me or for anybody else. So I made the decision a couple of days ago, like I'm done. I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. And I've, I've gotten better. I haven't, I haven't been perfect at it yet. It's hard to quit cold turkey. It is, but I've, you know, but I've made the decision that, you know, I'm, I'm, I've lost a lot of that lightheartedness and that positivity that, that I had gotten used to because I stopped working on it. Well, you know, I had this discussion with my brother about this being my mid-year resolution and he said, well, you found your meh. He'll say, he'll, when Thomas gets to a point that he doesn't, doesn't care and doesn't have it. He just say, "Meh, I don't like that. I hate that because I'm. I do not want to invalidate your thought. I don't want to invalidate your thought in my mind. I don't want to right. give my myself permission to invalidate your thought process. You know, because um, that has a connotation to me of I'm of not that I don't think it's worth the intellectual pursuit, but more along the lines of I, I, I've got my mind made up." And, and I don't care what you have to say. Well, one of my most successful negotiation strategies 
when I'm negotiating with somebody, if I show somebody a house and they say, I, I just, I don't like this house. Like, you're right. This house is terrible. Let's go. And then they'll immediately switch positions. Mm-hmm. I've closed many a deal where people will switch positions because I agreed with them. Mm-hmm. And, I'll, and there's, a valid, um, there's a valid technique there in doing that. And it's, you know, it's, it's effective in a, in a sales capacity, kind of like what you're discussing. But it's also kind of customer service 101. You know, most people, if you've ever had the displeasure of working in customer service, which I have for many, many years, you you develop kind of customer service 101 is most people just want to be heard. Give them a chance to say their piece and agree with what you have the ability to agree with. And then and, and at which point they'll probably calm down or even reverse positions. And in your life, you should not live a life where you feel the need to invalidate the thoughts of others. Mm-mm. And all there, there should not be a time, you know, people, um, people, oh, liberals are ruining the country. Liberals are doing this. Well, you can be liberal and not be left. Right. You can be, you know, and this is, and this is one of those things where we have reached a point and I'm going to say in this country, I think there's a bit of a global issue with this as well, but I, I, I only see it through my own lens. So I'm going to say it's an American problem of being, of living in black and white. And assuming that the world is black and white, when 80% of the world is gray. Well, it's the mask controversy. And uh, and this actually comes back to a cigar article, which we actually have here, and all that Rob Report did this article. And it's, can you smoke a cigar of a mask on? How Vegas Vegas lounges are adjusting to COVID-19 restrictions. The mask debate is running rampant in this country. And, you know, it's, it's funny, too, because I see problematic behavior on both sides of this argument. Oh, yeah. You know, I will wear a mask in public because it's not for me. It's for other people. And if, and if you get a sense of reassurance by seeing me wear a mask, it doesn't cost me anything. Well, you know, I've sold two different rowing machines over the course of the last couple of weeks, bought them cheap, flipped them real quick. One guy got out. He was wearing a mask. I didn't offer to shake his hand. I made extra extra care to be sure, you know, he and I weren't touching the same surfaces. Mm-hmm. Because it's obviously, it's important enough to him to strap a mask on his face. Yeah. Regardless of my view of masks, it was important enough to him to strap a mask, and I owe it to my fellow man to respect that. Exactly. You know, I... I had I was buying a new computer monitor back before before the stay at home order was even in place. You know, so very early on, uh, feels like a lifetime ago, honestly. And it, she mentioned as I was going to to meet her to buy this computer monitor that she was going to wear gloves. And, and so, I, okay, in my mind, this is somebody who either cares, but she's touching something. She goes, so she's she's showing me that she cares about my well being, my health, my safety. And so I messed her back and I said, okay. Because I had a mask. I didn't have gloves, but I had a mask. And I said, okay, I'll wear the mask. That's fine. That's, you know, that's reciprocating the respect here. And then I realized I'm showing up at this lady's house to buy a piece of electronic equipment. And she's never met me before. And I'm going to show up with a mask on my face. Incognito. And so I, I actually messaged her and I was like, okay, so here's the deal. I have a mask, um, which is obviously for your safety. However... If the safety of being able to see the face of the person who's on your property is more important to you, I'm happy to not wear it. She goes, yeah, you don't have to wear it. 
okay, fine. But it's, it's a nuance. Yeah, it is a nuance thing. It's a nuance, and I think that's what you end up getting into with people is they want to be right so bad, they lose the nuance of just of just respecting the fellow man. But this article talks about um, people in Vegas, and they have a mask order going on, you know, that you have to wear masks when you're in the casino and all that stuff. I'm not going to Vegas anytime soon because I don't want to wear a mask. And that's which which is your right. That is exactly my right. They're a business. They're not a they're not a public accommodation. I don't think a city should state everyone has to wear a mask in public. I think that's a crock and all. I think that it should be a deal where you would decide what level of risk you're willing to take. And you respect the level of risk someone else is willing to take. I, I agree with you to a point. Um because I, I definitely think, you know, is it is it overkill? Maybe, um, you know. But when you talk about public accommodation, like like government buildings, I think I think I'm fine to require masks there. But when you start dictating what private people can do or not do, I think that's where we get. You know, I had a pretty I don't want to say heated discussion, but a pretty intense discussion with somebody a couple of days ago about because uh, the mask order came out in Nashville. And one of the exceptions was uh, places of worship. And while I think, you know, it, it, it's unfortunate because a lot of the people who are in charge of places of worship, regardless of denomination or whatever, tend to be a bit more on the conservative side, which also tends to skew to the people that are avoiding mass mandates. But at the, so, it, you know, those are people and they tend to be older populations who are more susceptible to what's going on. And I think we do have a, a duty to protect those people. However, I also don't know that I agree with uh, the government dictating what happens in a place of worship. I, I think that needs, you know, so. I, well, you know, I had this debate with my father yesterday and uh, he said, well, what do you think about? Them require them leaving the leaving the liquor stores open and closing the churches, and through the lens that if you just look at that of its own, uh, oh, so you can go buy a fifth of Jack, but you can't go worship. Um, it looks bad, but if you look at the science, people are together, they're touching, yeah. they're hugging, they're singing, they're broadcasting germs across the, wherever they happen to be worshiping versus people can die of alcohol withdrawal. Right. You kind of have to look at, you can't just look at the frames, you've got to look at the lenses. And especially when we've got a situation where technology is such that it doesn't mean that the that you're being separated from your religion. It's me. It means that you're being you're, you're having to take some additional considerations and you're having to change the way you worship, but no one's telling you you can't. They're just saying, we can't have groups of that magnitude, especially, you know, we're deep in the South in the, you know, the heart of the Bible Belt here. We've got churches a stone's throw from here that on any given Sunday, we'll see 10,000 people walk through the door. You know, oh, yeah. that's, that's a huge risk. And and if if we can't rely on the people in charge of those buildings and those businesses, for lack of a better term, then, then it, to, to do the right thing, then sometimes we have to step in temporarily and just kind of force the hand. I, again, still don't know that I necessarily agree with it because I am very much in favor of you know, religion not influencing government and, and vice versa. So, I don't know. It's a, but we are 
but you know, when we come back, I want to delve into that just a little bit more because I want to talk about shepherds, sheep, and wolves. All right. Yeah, I think that's a, a great. And then when we come back from break, I'm ready to light up my cigar. How about you? I am. I finished my I finished my High Clear Castle. I would I officially rate the High Clear Castle a five and three quarter. Wow. I was I expecting you to say five and a half. So that's a little bit better than I thought you were going to give it. I can't give it a six because it's overpriced. Right. I get that. It's not something I'm going to go in there and buy regular. It is overpriced for the cigar it is. Um, and part of that's due to, you know, paying off the people that need to be paid off to call it the High Clear Castle. Well, they were actually the ones that approached Foundation about that. Well, I'm sure they did. They made some money off well, of it. Yeah. I mean, uh, just because they approached them with it doesn't mean they didn't make any cash on it. But um, I can give it, I can, in good conscience, I can give it a five and three quarter because I was expecting it to be a four and a half. And the Nestor Miranda, I'm going to give a five and one quarter. It, it's a, I, I definitely prefer the High Clear Castle to that, but it actually, it hit me just right tonight. I, I go back to, you know, the, like I said, the second one I had wasn't superb. The first one I liked quite a bit. This one reminded me of that first one. It, it's well, definitely right there. We'll come back, light a cigar, and talk about the world. Trey here with this week's Cigar Under 8. I want to talk about the Perdomo Reserve uh, 10th Anniversary Champagne. Now, this is a cigar that we talked highly about in last week's episode, talking about the new uh, releases from Perdomo, but wanted to talk about you know their workhorse, the, the one that started it all, really, in my opinion. It's kind of a, a mild plus, mild to medium cigar. Um, Connecticut wrapper. It's got... Even if you're a full-bodied smoker, you're going to enjoy this cigar. The beautiful thing about this cigar, we didn't cover it when we talked about it in the show a week or so ago. This ages so well. It really does. Um, if you buy a box of these and stick them in your humidor for a year and let them really come to fruition, it's a totally different experience than jerking one off the shelf that just came in. I mean, just an absolute different um different mouthfeel everything there's no cigar that ages as well as this cigar no absolutely and you know it's one of the things i think that that derives all of its flavor or how it's able to get so much flavor in such a mild uh, strength format is that they actually triple ferment the tobaccos in this and so it allows them to awaken some of the flavor profile and some of the uh, the nuances of that flavor um, without having to bring a lot of strength of the party to get it Until next week, try the Perdomo Champagne 10th Anniversary. Welcome back to the Cigar Cast. One of your hosts, Shane, sitting across from the man, never be mistaken for the illegitimate son of macho man Randy Savage, Trey Dedman. I'll take it. Well... (laughs) Okay, the last name Savage. Any first name sounds awesome if the last name is Savage. That's right. And all there's really, you know, me and my wife have been playing this game for weeks where she'll name a first name and I'll tell her, oh yeah, you know, it's just John. Oh, uh, strong John Savage, only man to swim the English Channel wearing nothing but a bow tie. Yeah, John Savage, awesome guy. Yeah. There's no name so innocuous that if your last name was Savage, it wouldn't sound awesome under some light. Herbert? Herbert Savage? <laughs> Crazy Herb Savage? I mean, really, how can, it, how can you not love Herb Savage? 
spin off. There's really no name not enhanced by the last name of Savage. I'll give you that. It's kind of like Danger. Yeah. Danger's a, a, an equally strong last name. Danger's an equally strong last name, but, but Danger feels like a fake last name. You can almost slide Savage in there. And It's funny, too, because Savage definitely does sound like a fake last name until you remember Ben and Fred Savage, the kid actors from the 80s and 90s. And it's like, okay, there's some legitimacy to the name. And that was one of those where, sure, you know, Ben Savage isn't a particularly strong name, neither is Fred. But Uncle Ben Savage? <laughs> Don't eat that rice. The man, the man that burned the rice fields to make a statement against the colonials? But, um, <laughs> but that is definitely... Um, Shortchanged by their persona and their appearance. I think there's a certain amount that goes with that. You've, if you're going to pull off Savage, you got to be six one yeah. and about two ten. Yeah. If if your last name's Savage, your physical appearance appearance does have something. But I can argue there's no no name. You know, Ulta. I have an uncle Ulta. If his name was Ulta Savage. Well, when you get into names like that, that you know, you think of them as being older, but there, there's a certain, yeah, no, I like that. You know, omnipotent Ulta Savage, look at that man. Yeah. <laughs> and all, which you need a good adjective. You know, you have to have a good av- adjective up front. Lloyd. Oh, Lloyd? Lloyd Savage? Uh, yes, I, that one I'm not saying. Lloyd Savage is... Lloyd Savage, first man to fly across the Potomac in a hang glider? How can you not love Lloyd Savage? Uh, so, uh, to me, no, Lloyd Savage is a bank robber, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Oh, the Lloyd Savage gang? Yeah. And uh, All right, Lloyd Savage is here. Give us all your money. That's I'm, right. Hey, see, it works. It, it does works. work. It works every single time. So, anyway. <laughs> and, uh, okay, we're going to fire up another cigar. Yeah, let's do it. This is this is a first. Yeah, so um, I'll tell everybody about your cigar. Courtesy of Fabio. Courtesy of Fabio. That is the house blend from a local liquor store that happens to have a pretty good humidor. Well, so a little background, because when you say something like that, it's like, what? Woody's uh, Smoke and Ales, I think it was called, or Smokes and Brews. It was Smokes and Brews. Smokes and um, Brews. Used to be the go-to shop in this area. Uh, they were the first, They were attached to a liquor store the size of a flea market. I oh, mean, yeah. That thing is massive. Um, had a huge selection, great prices, great beer selection back in the day. They had an upstairs lounge with a big screen TV. And, and it was a really great spot. And it was the first cigar shop that I made myself a regular at, um, going back to about 2007. Um, and then they did some renovation. It was owned by the same people that owned the liquor store next door. And so they went through a renovation to sh- shrink the footprint of the cigar shop in order to increase the footprint of the, the liquor store. Yeah, they utilized the space because the craft beer revolution had taken over. Yeah. and But unfortunately... Because of the ownership of this place, um, they never reopened the lounge. So, you know, so it's not your typical liquor store with a humidor on the wall. This is, they still have a full walk-in humidor, and they've got legacy in this town as having been around for 20 years now. Oh, yeah, and those, we affectionately refer to those cigars as honeycombs. They're medium filler cigars. They sit in the back of the shop in a honeycomb-style rack system. Custom built. I don't know if you knew that, but I didn't tribute. know that. And uh, But that is the San Andreas, and uh, I believe it's Dominican tobacco with a San Andreas wrapper. Um, it's a little bigger. It's a 660, which is a little bigger than a cigar you usually smoke, but it's free, so you can't complain. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just a good smoke. 
It's just an, a very relaxing smoke. I bought a bundle of them there a week or two ago. And I'll, because you can get a bundle of those under $100. Right. And I'll, and they're just enjoyable, super enjoyable smokes, especially that it's a go to fishing smoke for me. I get that. Because if I, if I drop it while I'm fishing, it's not a, a huge loss. It's not like I dropped a Padron 1964 into the Tennessee River and lost it. Exactly. I'm going to smoke one of my favorite cigars. This is a H. Upman Connecticut by Grupo de Maestros. Um, H. Upman has been on the ball. They have. You know, in the previous show, we talked about Perdomo not being sexy. Um, H. Upman has definitely turned that side of their marketing around. Because they definitely had that reputation as not being a sexy brand. But they have really brought the, brought the heat, so mm-hmm. to speak, into this. And their, um, their cigars are just amazing. This is a Ecuadorian Connecticut wrapper, binders Dominican, and the fillers Dominican and Nicaraguan. It's a largely a Dominican feeling cigar. Yeah, it's it's interesting to because I've just lit this up, and I've had their uh, I've had a couple of their honeycombs. I don't get over to Woody's very much. I just don't find myself on that side of town, uh, even though it's only about five minutes from here, and. So it's interesting on the heels of that Nesta Miranda, which was very smooth. This one's got a little bit more bite to it, um, and I think that's that San Andreas coming through. Now, um, the the H M and then you're smoking is that also part of their collaboration with AJ? You can just nod. You don't have to stop. It is not okay. This is not. This is no AJ in this one. Okay. And you know that immediately when you light it because it's just not that. It doesn't have that little initial kick that you always get off of AJ. Right. Yeah, because I actually haven't had one of those yet. I haven't been over to Casa since probably the beginning of the year. Um, I definitely need to get back over there and pick up some stuff. But, no, you're right. H. Upman has, has really changed a corner, uh, or turned a corner, rather, um, over the course of the last, say, two, three years. Yeah, and it's just, it, this is one of my favorite smokes. This is a very relaxing smoke. It's got good complexity. It's got good flavor. It's got good mouth feel. I mean, this is just a really good cigar. Yeah. And this is not to be confused. You know, they do the extremely rare and limited Grupo de Maestros. This right. is the production blend Grupo de Maestros. Okay. And, uh, and it's just a, I just really enjoy this smoke. This was the smoke I put in my case because I knew I wanted to have it after the show. Because it, it's the perfect cigar to kind of wind down with. Yeah, I get that. So let's talk about sheeps, shepherds, and wolves. Here's the question, and I'll give you some explanation on the question. What is the more noble? If you, if you said, okay, I'm going to group the world into three kinds of people. I'm going to group the world into sheeps, wolves, and shepherds. What is the most noble to be? Well, and so a little background on this for the um, for the listeners, because we, this was a, a topic that came up when we were sitting out here a couple of weeks ago. You know, it, it, you've d- neither one of us really fall into the sheep or the wolf category. You know, there are wolves in this world. There are people whose motivation through life is what they can get out of other people. Well, so um, I hate to cut you off, but I do want to establish a perspective. The perspective that I am operating under here, and all, because I do consider myself a wolf, and all, a sheep is the day to day, nine to fiver, 
goes out, does the work. Somebody's got to dig the ditches. That's a sheep. And, I, and there's nothing wrong with being a sheep. And I, there has been times in my life that I have been an excellent sheep. The world needs sheep. I, I have the capacity to be a very good sheep. As, as do I. And, you know, and it's funny because especially with social media, as we were talking about in the first half of the show, there's, there's a certain connotation. You see it thrown about on social media a lot about how sheep is a pejorative. And there are ways in which it could be, for sure, but but it doesn't necessarily have to be. The wolf, for me, is not a malicious being. The wolf has a job to do. The wolf doesn't necessarily have to eat. He doesn't have to raid the flock to get a sheep. There's plenty of sheep that wander off of their own accord that just need eat that the world's all right if they eat. It's not going to be a huge loss to the flock. Matter of fact, it's actually a healthy for the flock. You know, the, the role of predators in nature is undeniable to the benefit of having predators. In, to an extent. Because you, you can have predators that overhunt their, their habitat and, and force themselves out of having a habitat to live in. But not, not good predators. And, you know, a predator's capture rate. Now, we're not speaking of an ambush predator. We're speaking of a stalk predator. A stalk predator's actual success rate is probably in the 30% range. Right. And also, there, you know, when I say wolf, I'm not speaking of a malicious and evil. Because when we start talking about good and evil, it's a totally different ballgame. Well, but typically when you bring up the sheep and wolf um, comparison. That's tip, that's what most people think of. That is, that's, and that's my job is to is to further illuminate people's lives into the the perceptions and all because there's evil sheep the same as there are evil um, evil wolves, and then there's the shepherd. Now, self-appointed armchair shepherds are the bane of my existence, and all the armchair shepherd is the one that wants to tell the sheep what they should do and expects the sheep just to do what they should do. He's not willing to take the hook and put it around the neck of a sheep that's causing a lot of problem. They would rather grumble at the sheep and wonder why in the world he does not want to be I a think, sheep. I, I think you probably need to find a different analogy for what you're getting at. Um, because I, I understand your premise and and I get it, but at the same time, when you look at the role of a shepherd, it is to be the person that puts the hook around the neck and actually enforces their position of authority over the flock. But do we need a shepherd? Well, that that's entirely reliant on context, if I think. You, if you breed a flock of sheep, that is of superior genetic characteristics, one of those genetic characteristics will be that you have a flock that doesn't need that, that knows to stay together, that knows to go to the field that you point them at, that knows what they're doing. A superior sheep will definitely negate the necessity of a shepherd. Well, but that's, that's the argument against artificial intelligence and robots. You know, eventually they become self-aware and they, they won't respond to the voice of reason and our society is full of armchair shepherds. Every time I turn on social media, that's the 18, 18 of the 60 posts I look at it a day 
will be some armchair shepherd saying, oh, you should, you should com- be, have compassion. You know, how many times will a good shepherd allow a sheep to wander off and endanger the rest of the herd going to find that sheep as opposed to finally just saying, okay, he's obviously a sheep that's unsavable. Well, you know, we were, but, but the, I'm trying to crystallize my, my thoughts. I, I don't usually have to work so hard because we're not usually recording these types of discussions. You know, but the role of the shepherd, the true role of the shepherd, and I'm talking about somebody who has been appointed to that position, not somebody who has necessarily taken it on and lifted that mantle on their own, um, is to protect the entire, you know, it's the, we were talking about, you know, religion earlier, you know, and there's a, a very good parable um, in one of the gospels about how the shepherd will leave the 99 to go collect the one that's in danger. And that is the role of the shepherd. A good shepherd will, because you don't, because there's power and safety in numbers. So if you've got one who is in danger and you've got others who, who aren't, you know that they're safer than that one alone. And it is your duty in that case to, to bring him back into the fold. But how many times do you do it as often as he roams off or at some point? Because in a group or not, the sheep are in danger when the shepherd is not there. In a group or not. So how many times... But they're times, in less danger than the one that's off on its own. But you how know, many times do you try to protect someone from their own stupidity? Well, let's let's look at raising children as a, as a great example of that. You know, you... You know, you, if you, you you can tell them the stove is hot a hundred times till you're blue in the face. And there's no greater teacher than letting them touch the stove and find out. And then they only need to learn once. However, is that a practical approach to learning when you've got a house with guns in it or when you let the kid behind the wheel of the car for the first time or you know and so if if we take it from a group and look at a singular position i think if your role is to be a shepherd which in in many different symbolic ways that is the role of parenthood um i th- i think it's every time i don't think you ever give up the worst human beings i know bar none I can look right at their parents, and their parents bailed them out of trouble every time they got in. They never felt the consequences of their actions sufficiently in a manner that but that brought them around. Well, then what you are describing then is a shepherd who goes and finds the one that has wandered off, picks him up and carries him back to the flock on his back versus leading him back to the flock. You know, it's the teach a man to fish, give a man a fish argument. You know, you can you can protect your children, you can protect your flock without saving the day, removing consequences and removing lo- learning opportunities. You can do both. Well, and a good shepherd will even, even hobble that particular sheep to give I, him the uh, opportunity to get his act together. Well, and I, I think uh, we have a lot of sheep that need hobbling. <laughs> roaming around right now. Again, I, I think you need to update your metaphor just a little bit because you're, you're um, because it's not necessarily germane to the, the sheep-wolf argument. Um, but I understand what you're saying. But, but yeah, I think, no, I do think you, if you are in a role, you know, this is something that gets really contentious when you start looking at politics. You know, the, the, the role of politics in some regard is a shepherd. 
Um, the role of government is to, you know, somewhat protect us from ourselves. The extent to which they do that depends on your personal ideology. So I won't go into that, but you know, it's, but is it, you know, is it worth turning your eye away from a specific person or group of people who are in danger for the betterment of the whole when by virtue of them leaving, you have now eliminated whatever resources and skills and benefits they bring to the whole. Absolutely. And if they manage not to get eat, not to fall into a crevice and die and want to come back to the herd and now understand what the herd is, you can welcome them back. And all, but there's there we all cut toxic people out of our lives. Yeah, but but that's that's toxic toxicity is very different from what you're describing. Now, if you've got a sheep that is constantly is constantly butting heads, literally, because that's what sheep's do, um, or sheep would be the correct plural there. Um, you know, if if you've got a you know, a toxic member of your flock, whether it's carrying disease and needs to be culled or, um, you know, or, or re- after repeated intervention refuses to, you know, do what they need to be doing, then that's a different. But, but when you talk about toxicity versus, you know, maybe just being a little bit slower to learn. I think I think you use different approaches in each of those scenarios. Well, and a good shepherd doesn't cull lightly, right. but he's not afraid to cull. Well, and I think there's you know there's something to be said for that. Yeah, you definitely don't want to be flippant in your in your uh, belief in 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 the the health of your flock. You know, you don't want to just because then you're not a very good shepherd if you just let them all die. Well, and you know, shepherds, be, if you look at shepherds being politicians, the way our Constitution was framed was framed in a manner to produce good shepherds. And it has been perverted and totally turned around by the career shepherd. And I would, well, and I would even venture to say, because this is my definition of a wolf more so than it is yours, which is that you've got a couple of wolves or maybe a wolf in sheep's clothing or wolves playing shepherd right now. Yeah, there, there's definitely thoughts along that line. You know, um, you know, a perfect example. At the stage in life I am in right now, I should be, if, if we were doing a strict adherence to the Constitution of the United States, I should be a city building inspector right now. I wouldn't make as much money as I do. But I have benefited from the system for over 20 years. And somebody should be able to walk up and say, Hey, Shane, you've benefited from the system. You have put in the work. You are a master designer. You're a master builder. You know what you need to know to do this job well. We need you to serve for five or 10 years. And I would do it with no problem whatsoever. And I would do it very, very well. Right. But we don't live in a society where that happens. And uh, we live in a society where the people that are being, um, that are the building inspectors are people that can't do it, that don't have the knowledge to do it. And all they can do is read the code book and think about how that makes them feel and ends up being a disaster for everybody. And it, it, the end result is the 
the viability of somebody at 25 buying a house has gone away. Right. And that's largely in due to the fact that our building codes has gone outside of what it should be. Well, and it's it's also, you know, I don't want to offend any teacher that we might have listening or, or relative thereof, but the old saying goes, uh, you know, those who can't do teach, those who can't teach regulate. And and I think I think that you know, maybe not in the sense of a true educator, but I do think that bears out in your example. Oh, a lot of times. And I don't know a single successful person that if you walked up and said, hey, you have benefited vastly from the structure that we have created. It's now your time to become part of that structure that would not step up to the plate. Well, and you you know, you know, mentioned the whole career shepherd thing, and I think this is something that you and I both agree on is, is the idea of term limits for politicians. And, and you know, we... We have a civic duty to serve on a jury when we're called, and we have a civic duty to vote in local, state, and federal elections, and we have certain—and I feel like if our service, our public service extended to state legislature, local, local, you know, um, executive branch type of scenarios, uh, and it was—it had a—it had an expiration date on it of, like, yeah, two terms and you're done— I think you'd have a lot more people because the, the, the biggest threat to, to our society that we, we find are people that, that want too badly to have those jobs. Well, it's tenure. Tenure for teachers ruins education. Right. There should be no scenario in which your job is guaranteed. You know, I, I heard a lot of people in the, what was it, 2012 election you know, basically saying, well, we gave the other guy eight years. We should give this guy eight years. And, you know, and, and, and I think that's why, how you end up with people like Strom Thurmond, who served in the Senate for like 642 years. You know, they're, just, because it's the, just because it's the devil you know doesn't mean it's the right answer. Um, you know, we've got to, we definitely have gotten away from this, as we were talking about earlier, the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. Yeah, and I think there's there's a lot. That's where a lot of the unrest that we deal with comes from. Is you get people that would rather be right than be successful. Right. If I've said it once, I've said it a million times. You get people that would much rather be right than be successful. So let's cover one more cigar-related article. Let's do now it. That we phil- philosophized through most this of the show. This has been fun. This has been completely off-brand for us, but I've really enjoyed the heck out of this. I do, too. Do you want to talk Fratello or Blue Mountain? Let's talk Fratello. Okay. Let's, a, let's end on a positive Okay. Note. Let's do it. Um, then I'll say Blue Mountain for next week. So, Because I, I think that is really interesting. Cigar Journal um, has released uh, an article about Fratello cigars I- introducing the Arlequin Prensado. Now... I am a huge fan of Fratello cigars, despite the fact that I don't smoke a whole lot of them. And you don't see them in every humidor. Um, started by a guy named Omar DeFries out of Washington, D.C. Um, and I can never remember if he worked for the CIA or NASA. It was one of the two. Um, awesome guy. Looks, I mean, he's like six foot ten. I mean, he's massive guy. As nice as can be. And when he first started this company, he was doing it like Rocky did. He was on a plane every weekend, and he was traveling around and putting his cigars in the hands of the peop- of the retailers that were going to sell it for him. 
becoming friends with people and just the nicest guy in the world. And on top of that, has a great cigar to boot. Um, kind of in that vein, why I think this is so interesting is because about in June of 2019, so a, a year ago, basically they released two cigars. And the intent was that the consumer would pick their favorite cigar from the two choices available and kind of share their feedback. Well, they did. And here's the result of that. And I just, I love the idea of crowdsourcing the uh, interest behind a new blend. It's the way the cigar business should run. Because cigar smokers will tell you when they don't like a cigar. Right. They will tell you when it's not a good smoke. And uh, they're not going to varnish it to such a degree as to, you know, now they don't have to say this cigar sucks and you were stupid for buying it. Right. But they will say this cigar is not for my palate. Right. And if enough people say this cigar is not for my palate, then you need to cut that cigar out of your lineup. Exactly. And, and more to the point, we talk about it with, I think it was about three weeks ago we talked about how if you're going to, you know, if you're going to have a um, cigar shop, you know, what's the number one thing you can do to guarantee your success? And it's listen to your regulars. Bring yeah. in the stuff that they want to smoke. And, you know, this is the first time in my memory that we actually see evidence of a manufacturer taking that approach. And, and I think it's a great idea, especially, especially in the connected era that we live in. Yeah. We live in such a connected era where it would be so easy. You know, it's so easy. Any, lo- any cigar makers out there that would like to try this, try me. If you sent two cigars to the Cigar Cast and you said, hey, y'all do a weekly podcast and we want your honest, unvarnished opinion, we would give it. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think would, our hundred and however many episodes kind of bears that out. Yeah. If somebody came in and said, these are the, you know... You're a huge Crown Heads fan, but you can completely intellectually honestly say most of what they made last year was a dog. Right. And I'll, I'm a Drew Estate fan, but I can honestly say they've not done anything new or innovative this year. Mm-hmm. Nothing they've done is really innovated and really caused me to want to further my love of that brand. And, and I think there's a, there's a lot of value in it. I like the way, I love the way Fratello is doing this. And I, I definitely think this is a cigar, uh, you know, on top of all of that, I think it's a cigar that you would really like. It's made in the Hoya de Nicaragua factory, uh, San Andreas wrapper, uh, Ecuadorian Habano binder, and Peruvian and Nicaraguan filler. That sounds like a recipe made for Shane. That's an that's a excellent, yeah, Ecuadorian Habano, I really enjoy um, Peru tobacco, I'm just getting into. It's kind of new to the market. Yeah, is it, Peru's finally coming online with their tobacco crops, and it's coming along. And um, we're starting to see it peppered into some blends. Right. I would like to smoke a pure Peruvian sometime so that I had a base to really understand Peruvian tobacco. Yeah, me too. And uh, Because I don't have a base. You know, um, I understand Ecuadorian tobacco, because I've been to Ecuador, where the guy has obviously grown it, cured it, and rolled it himself, and is selling it right there at the crew port, and you know that is a, a Habano cigar. Right. You know, that is Ecuadorian tobacco. Well, and you've had a, enough experience with it in terms of you know, just smoking and enjoying cigars made with it that you've, you've developed a palate to be able to pick it out. And so you understand what you're getting with an Ecuadorian Habano wrapper or leaf. And, and uh, you know, I, 
I look forward to seeing more Peruvian tobacco in our cigar so I can, so I can kind of uncover uh, what type of palate feel it has, what type of nuance and flavors it brings to the party. All right, so it's now time in the show to pronounce judgment. Well, I'm only about a third of the way through. Um, it's, like you said, it's a medium filler cigar, so it's never going to blow my socks off. It's a 6x60, which is not a size that... But, you know, knowing the price being around 6 bucks or a little less... Right. Um, you know, it's a it's a 5. It's a 4 and 3 quarters 5. It's, uh, a, it's a good $5 cigar. Yeah. I mean, it's a good $5 cigar. It, to... To get a $5 cigar that's going to be a 6 is going to be asking a lot. That's a Charter Oak. Yeah, that's going to be a, that's asking a lot, That and that's the only one right off the top of my head I could possibly come up with. Absolutely, same. And I don't know that they don't lose money on the Charter Oak. <laughs> you almost have to. I can't... If it's possible to make a cigar that good that cheaply... Why isn't everybody doing it? Right. Why have we not Un- seen more of them? Unless you're taking a loss or just barely breaking even. Yeah, unless unless you're saying, um, here, put the Charter Oak in. We're not going to turn a profit on it, but it's going to open the door to have the other foundation product in there. Well, yeah, you know, it's the, you know, it's the crack dealer giving you the first taste for free. Exactly. Yeah. And I'll... Um, yeah, because I've talked to some shop owners that carry the full foundation line. And, you know, the thing with Charter Oak is that once it comes in, it sells out immediately. And then they're on back order. And then you have to... You know, and I was talking to the shop owner who never seems to be without Charter Oaks. And it's because they do a big box business. But because they do so much with the rest of Foundation's lineup, they're able to get more of the... You know, and so I, I think it is kind of like what you're talking about. of like, we'll let you burn through this because of what you can do for the rest of our line. Yeah. Um, the group of the Maestros, H. Upman, excellent. It's a six. It's a six and a quarter all day long. It's always consistent. It's always good. It's just an excellent workhorse cigar. Well, I hope you all have enjoyed a little break from the routine this week. Uh, it's been absolute blast for me. I, I assume it has been for you as well. Um, you can reach us at facebook.com slash the cigar cast. We're on Instagram and Twitter at the cigar cast and shoot us an email info at the cigar Well, thank you everybody for listening until next week. Have a great cigar and think well of us. Mm-hmm.